Amen. Well, good morning. Open your Bibles with me, beloved, to the Gospel of Mark. Our warmest thanks, of course, to Brady and Diana for leading us in worship. I was gloriously reminded this week, what is contained in the word put before us today? And it was through a man who ran after the word, J.C. Ryle, that I was reminded of such truth. You hear him often quoted from this pulpit as a, a steady beacon of scriptural truth that was put to his people in very practical ways. But some in our flock may not know this man. And often we can be even more encouraged by a, a quote or a reading of someone if we have an idea who they were. And perhaps the trials and the hardships that marked and influenced their lives. Well, much has been written about Ryle, and his own works are still widely published, and they grace every library of every biblical preacher I've ever known. And the J.C. stands for John Charles. And passing in the year 1900, he lived a remarkable life. Dr. Michael Haubman and Banner of Truth tell us that Ryle came to faith in Christ while at Oxford as he turned to the Bible. During this time, he had a Recovery from a chest infection that was very bad. And he was, on an out, he, was on an, he was an outstanding athlete at Oxford. From there, he went on to study law in London with the intention of running for parliament. However, when he got to London, the smog there exacerbated his breathing and his health problems. And then his father, he suffered financial ruin, which meant that Ryle would not have the necessary financial backing for a political career. So instead, he turned to the ministry, and he's ordained in the Church of England. Isn't that funny how God works through such things? You know, it was not at all uncommon during certain periods, especially when you had state-sponsored and sanctioned churches for, for men to choose the ministry, not necessarily out of a sense of calling, but simply as a vocation. And so Ryle started his ministry as a curate, as a, a ministerial assistant, and then he became a rector, serving at two different churches in succession. And I imagine that it was during this time that Ryle was actually born again. That time spent turning to the scriptures during his illness began to take deep hold and root. It was during this time that he was married and widowed twice. And it was then he also began publishing tracts, eventually circulating over two million with translations into many languages. And he wrote a series on expository thoughts on Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In fact, I, I often use Ryle in my own study of Mark. And finally, in 1861, he became vicar of All Saints Church in Suffolk. And there, according to Banner of Truth, he became known nationally for his, quote, straightforward preaching and firm defense of evangelical principles, close quote. And he finished his expository thoughts on John, which completed that whole gospel series. And in 1869, he married his third wife, Henrietta, who lived until 1889. And in 1880, Ryle became the first bishop of Liverpool. Now, for those doing the math, Ryle was 63 years of age when he was called to the largest position of his life. Don't believe the Western concept of retirement. God is just getting started with you. J.C. Ryle retired in 1900, and he died later that same year. And he served 20 years 
in the most fruitful time of ministry at an age when the world says we should be sitting on a beach in Florida. But there is work to be done. After Ryle's death, a contemporary pastor had this to say about him. Quote, J.C. Ryle was great through the abounding grace of God. He was great in stature, great in mental power, great in spirituality, great as a preacher and expositor of God's most holy word. He was great in hospitality, great as a writer of gospel tracts, great as a bishop of the Reformed Evangelical Protestant Church of England, of which he was a noble defender, great as first bishop of Liverpool. I am bold to say, he goes on, that perhaps few men in the 19th century did as much for God, for truth and for righteousness among the English-speaking race and in the world as our late bishop, close quote. Wouldn't it be wonderful to be remembered in such a way, in whatever sphere of ministry God has placed you, you taking a page from Ryle, if you're in your 60s here this morning, You're just getting started. You're just catching your stride. But do you think like that? Do you believe you will do more for the Lord in your remaining years with the maturity you have gathered than you have till now? Many don't think this way. Many of this age range are often tempted to to look to accomplishments and glories past rather than forward with great expectancy. If your secular vocation has ceased... That social security check is arriving in the mail. Congratulations. You're in full-time ministry. Now, what are you doing? What are you doing? Ryle did his greatest work in this time, accomplishing more for his Savior between 60 and 83 than he did between 0 and 60. Grab hold of that man and woman alike. There's great work to be done. And as I shared, I was gloriously reminded this week what it is that is contained in the word put before us. As we look to our scriptures this morning, what does this man, J.C. Ryle, a man who chased after the word till his last breath, what did he have to say about the word that we hold in our hands? Ryle declares this, quote, the Bible contains the mind of God. The state of man, the way of salvation, the doom of sinners, and the happiness of believers. Its doctrines are holy, its precepts are binding, its histories are true, and its decisions are immutable. Read it to be wise, believe it to be safe, and practice it to be holy. Isn't that wonderful? Read, believe, practice. That is our aim this morning. We are going to read it. And we are going to believe it. And we are going to walk out this door and we're going to do it. Doers of the word we have received. And so we shall. Amen? Amen. Amen. Well, last week we approached what our Lord called one of the most memorable, most beautiful events in all of Scripture. Something so precious, so extravagant. Jesus says that wherever the gospel is preached, this will be told in remembrance. And that has framed our heart and our disposition as we have approached such an amazing text. I know we had many families that were out last week. If you missed part one, 
please go back and listen to that. Now again, we are in the middle of the literary Mark and Sandwich, aren't we? The bread being the darkness and the treachery between verses 1 and 2 and 10 and 11. And sandwiched between the wickedness is the meat. Verses 3 through 9, the beautiful extravagant scene of Jesus' anointing. This is our rose between two thorns. This scene in Bethany showcasing Mary, sister to Martha and Lazarus, you'll recall is also recorded in Matthew 26 and John 12. And though we did make sure to draw your attention to a different anointing by a different Mary in Luke 7, we want to make sure you don't confuse those two. That one took place up in Galilee by Mary, who was identified as a sinner, as a prostitute. That's also not to be confused with Mary Magdalene. That, too, is a different Mary. Now, this scene in our text is taking place in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper. It's the only time that we see Simon, this Simon, mentioned in Scripture. So no doubt he was a leper that Jesus had healed. And while we lingered for a a good long while in Wednesday of Passion Week, Mark is not always chronological. And we saw from John 12, 1 that we're we're basically having a flashback right now to the previous Saturday. And as we said, we find ourselves in the village of Bethany. And by way of reminder, for those who missed last week, we, we we know the town of Bethany very well from our teaching through Mark 11. This is a small town. About two miles east of Jerusalem. It sits on the eastern slope of the Mount of Olives. And it being the home of Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. And of course, Jesus raised him from the dead, did he not? So this was also Jesus' Jerusalem headquarters, right? As he was going back and forth during his time and leading up to the Passion Week. This is where he stayed during this time. Only two miles Between there and Jerusalem, it was easy to get back and forth in a single day without any trouble. So this incredible scene happened in a house that was standing room only, right? And we know this simply by the people identified as being there. And not only that, but likely there are crowds that are thronging outside to get in. Yes, to get a peek at Jesus, but to see Lazarus. That had supposedly been raised from the dead. And we know this from John 12, 9 through 11. And in fact, Lazarus' testimony was so strong, and so many were coming to faith through Lazarus' testimony, that they planned to kill him as well, John tells us. So the thronging dinner scene must be captured. We must see that, lest we think that this was a a small, quaint gathering, that such an act of extravagant worship would be poured out in. This was not in the quiet privacy of an intimate dinner with a few friends. This was on display. One could even call it public. And that matters, doesn't it? Because it is the very disapproval of some in attendance that becomes a major point of application for our lives as we move forward today. And we took great pains to describe the beauty and the value of this alabaster box, this translucent, white, rare Egyptian marble, The flask itself being very valuable, having a long stem on it, one would take out but a single drop to give a pleasing aroma for a full day. This would have been the most valuable possession in their household, 300 denarii in value. We're talking a year's wage, a year's wage. It was pure, undiluted, 
and we understood why Mary possessed such an item, likely as a dowry for her own marriage or reserved for her own burial. And we behold how much of Mary's hopes and her dreams and her future provision was wrapped up in that alabaster jar. The extravagance of Mary's worship began to come into focus for us. Abandoning all protocol as a woman, in plain view of all, we witnessed what happens to a person's life. And to a person's worship, to a person's perspective, when they behold the truth and the lordship of Jesus Christ. The extravagant worship of one who is taken with the beauty of the Passover lamb. That no longer tracks the cost of her devotion, but is captive to the exceeding value and worth of knowing Jesus Christ. She broke the jar. She broke the jar. One and a half cups, a Roman pound, 12 ounces of pure spikenard. John's account tells us that Mary anointed the feet of Jesus as well and wiped his feet with her hair and that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. And we were reminded that when our worship When our giving, when our life is extravagant unto Christ, it is He that gives it value. Many things can be costly with no recognition of value. But the moment that Mary determined in her heart to pour out this costly ointment, it took on a worth that could not be calculated. That is the extravagant life that is captivated with Christ. Paul echoed this beautiful truth, did we not see this last week, in his epistle of joy, in Philippians 3, listen to the word count, and listen to the value and the worth, for I count everything as loss, because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For his sake I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count everything them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. And we trace this heart, this extravagant heart through Scripture. The same extravagant heart ran through David that poured out his worship and danced before the Lord, caring nothing for the disapproval of men. And that heart was in Mary. That heart was in Paul. That heart is in the so many in here this morning. Give me the surpassing worth. Give me the surpassing value of knowing Jesus Christ. If I'm counting something, if I'm keeping track, it's a loss. If I am beholding and knowing and worshiping Christ poured out, it is of surpassing worth and value. This is to mark our life. Our worship and our giving. Like David, we are to sing out. Let your voices be heard. When we read our corporate scripture, sound off that the world may hear the truth declared. And when we give, don't tip God. We give lavishly and abundantly. Nowhere in the extravagant life is our devotion to Christ to be measured and to be moderated. And did we not explore the reaction of the world 
to a life poured out? Will they not mock? Will they not scold as Jesus did? Will they not criticize and and denigrate as they did with David? Will kings and governors and intellectuals and naysayers not tell you that you've been driven to madness like Paul? Will they not tell you, as Judas did to Mary, that what she has done is to waste her worship, to waste her life, to waste her resources? Jesus is a waste to the world. Time spent in worship is lost. What fools the world thinks we are. We are to be mocked, scorned, ridiculed, and scolded. Mary stood there as their eyes burned into the back of her neck, hearing the whispers of derision. But yet, the extravagant believer's gaze is not upon the world. They have raised their gaze. And we will see this as we continue this incredible scene. And looking back to our most beautiful text, I'm going to read the entirety of verses 3 through 9 once again to to take in the entire scene. But today we'll be completing the last four verses, five verses, verses 5 through 9. Verses 5 through 9. And while he was in Bethany... Six through nine, excuse me. And while he was in Bethany at the home of Simon the leper and reclining at the table, there came a woman with an alabaster jar of perfume, a very costly pure nard. And she broke the jar and poured it over his head. But some were indignantly remarking to one another, Why has this perfume been wasted? For this perfume might have been sold for over 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they were scolding her. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? She did a good work to me. For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. But you do not always have me. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we stand here this morning in great fulfillment of this prophecy. Lord, that we speak of this woman and her worship to you. Heavenly Father, we ask that you would attend to your own word. Lord, that it would be deployed, that it would find its mark. Heavenly Father, we thank you for attending to this text with us. Holy Spirit, we are dependent upon you. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Well, as we continue along in our dinner scene in the small town of Bethany, really the remarkable telling has just begun. For those of us present, for those of us that were there, it's really just begun. And while we have now witnessed the extravagant worship of a woman who knows who Jesus is, and who knows what Jesus is about to do, that death awaits him, 
The question now is, what does the Passover lamb say to such a worship? How does he respond? Because to be sure, we see as much in Jesus' response to this sacrificial worship as we do to the opulent praise itself. So let us look closer, diving right into verse 6. Verse 6. But Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you bother her? Now pause there. Now our first truth, just floating on the top, lest we miss it, is that Jesus receives the worship. He receives it. Now perhaps that's self-evident to most, but we see Jesus receiving worship throughout the Gospels with the thrust of the author to declare that Jesus is divine. Jesus is God. It needs to be said. Jesus never tells someone who falls at his feet in worship to get up and stop worshiping me, like the apostles often had to in Acts. No, Jesus receives Mary's worship. This is a declaration of divinity. Let's not miss that that glorious truth that's staring not only right at the reader, but the declaration of divinity to all who were in the room that evening. And Jesus does a remarkable thing. He does a remarkable thing here. He defends Mary. Not only defends her, but the language here tells us that this word from Jesus is a command. It's an imperative, meaning the one who's giving it expects to be obeyed. Now that's notable for a few reasons. The first is the rarity of Jesus defending someone in scripture like this. Of rising to someone's defense. Jesus rarely did that. Perhaps because he rarely saw someone doing something worth defending. Why do you bother her? Why do you bother her? Think of all the things that Jesus could have said in that moment. As he sees every thought. As he knows every heart that's in that room. He could have called out Judas then and there. Couldn't he have? Do you think Jesus knew that Judas stole from the ministry money bag? That he was a devil? That he was a hypocrite? You bet he knew. By asking them why they are bothering her, he's telling them they're wrong about Mary and her worship. Yes, it was Judas leading the charge here, but the other accounts seem to show that that Judas was influential, that he had stirred up, that he had riled up some of the others in the room as well. And Jesus is correcting their thinking. You're missing the plot completely. If you grasp in your very being who I am, you would fall down with Mary. Not stand in judgment of her. The last part of verse 6, Jesus declares that she did a good work to me. Oh, what a statement to hear from Christ. Isn't that almost like hearing... Well done, good and faithful servant. Mary, you've received the approval of your Lord. That is a full stop, is it not? In that moment, did not every criticism fade away? Did the murmurings matter a single bit as Jesus rises to her defense? In that moment, nothing else mattered. Do we also comprehend that Jesus 
demonstrates here one of his roles as our high priest, as our savior, and our defender, as our advocate. We are accused before the Father by Satan. Satan means accuser, accuser of the brethren. That's you. But we have a defender. We have an advocate. You'll hear many preachers and commentators recognize Jesus commending Mary here. And indeed he is. But he's not only commending, he is defending Mary. Defending her against the accusations of a people who do not know him. Who believe that any time or effort or resources dedicated to him are a waste. Jesus will commend and defend the extravagant worshiper. And here our English fails us. It fails to capture the depth of what Mary did. Our English says that she did a good work to me. Your translations may say, did a good deed to me. The challenge is that we have a few different words for good in the Greek. There is agathos. Agathos meaning something that is morally or objectively good. Our second use, and the one that we see here, is not agathos, but is kalos. Meaning that it is both good and lovely. Something can be agathos, something can be morally good or straight or correct, and still be very cold and calculating and stern and austere. But this good, kalos, is enriched with a bloom on top of it. It has a heart and feeling. It's not merely a calculated right choice or a good choice. It is a good that is born from rivers of love and of worship. It is a good that's not captivated by cost, but one that is swimming in worth and value. This is what Jesus says Mary has lavished upon him. And in that moment, saints, what else could possibly matter to Mary? What criticism? What perceived loss? None. It is all enraptured. And it is carried away on the wings of true worship. Capture the heart of this beloved. And you'll understand the extravagant life. Back to our text. Looking now to verse 7, dear ones. Verse 7 For you always have the poor with you. And whenever you wish, you can do good to them. You do not always have me. What a statement. Is Jesus being callous to the plight of the poor here? Not at all. These are principles Jesus lays down for us, but they're not new. Jesus is pulling these from Deuteronomy 15 verse 11. Moses records, for the poor will never cease to be in the land. Therefore, I command you, saying you shall freely open your hand to your brother, to your needy and poor in your land. Jesus is using scripture to tear down their utter hypocrisy. But we must also learn from this in the here and now. For example, do we not hear of organizations like The United Nations or or various global groups talking about eradicating poverty by 2030 or 
that there's coming a day when we'll all be equal. No poor, no rich, all needs will be met. Food, health care, shelter, all will have their basic needs met. I'm sorry. But the creator of the universe says you're wrong. We will always have the poor with us. Yes, give generously to the poor. Have an open and free hand, but understand that we will never eradicate poverty in a fallen world. As much as a government may try to make heaven on earth, to play God to her citizenry, it can never be so. The poor will always be with you. And beloved, this is not fatalism. This is the reality of life on this side of eternity. And it needs saying, whether you are materially rich or materially poor here this morning has no bearing on your spiritual wealth. I know many who are poor who are rich and many who are rich who are poor. Being of limited means is not a sign of God's displeasure with you. And being rich is not a sign of God's favor upon you. If you've been taught that, be free. That is a false teaching. Now, if you suffer poverty because of a poor work ethic, if you're lazy or because of other besetting sins, Scripture does speak to that. Proverbs speaks to that repeatedly, doesn't it? Repent of that and recover. That is a poverty of spirit that has yielded a poverty of state, a poverty of wallet. But here Jesus is calling out their hypocrisy. And without unmasking Judas just yet, he is calling him out, isn't he? Why is Judas so mad here? Our Greek actually intimates that, that he was like a bull with a red flag at Mary. He's mad. Now, not to give away next week's thunder, but what do verses 10 and 11 say right after our scene here in Mark? It says that Judas went off to betray him for money. Judas has already fetched this plot in his heart. Judas knows what his heart wants to do, which means that this whole thing is about to come crashing down. And Judas wants as much as he can before he needs to bail. Pure and simple. Get while the getting is good. Make hay while the sun shines. Because darkness is coming. Judas knows. Because Judas is the one to facilitate it. Their concern for the poor has nothing to do with their anger. It was pure selfishness and pure greed. But for most are fallen to this mindset. This Judas mindset, this hypocrisy of the crowd, it's far more subtle. Each of us can fall into the camp of hypocrisy. Perhaps you remember a time when you were a Mary. <laughs> you were a Mary. And now we sound much more like Judas or the crowd of naysayers. Beloved, that happens when your love and your worship grows stale. That's when the inner curmudgeon comes out. That's when the critical eye and the critical heart begin to show. The spirit that possesses 10,000 microscopes for the failures of others, but never a mirror to be found. The complaining or backbiting, that means you've forgotten your first love. You've forgotten. Having the extravagant worship, the extravagant worship and heart of Mary, understand this, beloved, it is not a natural state. It's not natural. 
It takes daily renewing of your mind and your affections. And the world will dull them. And they will callous them. The worshipless heart comes on slowly. It comes on slowly. It creeps up on you. And you remember your days of zeal, don't you? When God first saved you. And you would dance like David. And you would worship like Mary. Now you fold your arms and scowl. If even in your heart. Beware that place. Beware. Return to the feet of Jesus. In extravagant worship. Jesus is telling us here in verse 7. That Mary has understood. The priority and the preeminence of Christ over all. Has she not? That's what Jesus is saying. He has told us the first and greatest commandment is this. Jesus told us, Mark 12, verse 30. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. That's the first, Jesus says. That's the primary. I am God. And your first priority is to love me and worship me with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. To break open the bottle. Commandment number one. And now the second greatest commandment. Mark 12, 31. The second is this. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So first, I will not always be with you. And I come first. Second, your neighbor, the poor, yes, love them, take care of them. But the first is first. And the second is second. The main thing is the main thing. And Jesus, in your presence, is the main thing. Jesus commending and his defending of Mary's worship continues. Look with me to verse 8. Look with me to verse 8. She has done what she could. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. One can almost smell the spikenard as we read those words. She has done what she could. What does that mean? What is Jesus saying? Well, he's saying, first off, that Mary's held nothing back in her adoration and her affection. She's held nothing in reserve when it came to the worship of the master. But it's more than that in context. She anointed my body beforehand for the burial. This is quite incredible, isn't it? Mary knew. Mary knew. Jesus has told the 12 who are in that very room time and again that he must die. That he must be turned over to the hands of wicked men and that they're going to kill the Passover lamb. They had been told time and again. And yet we know from the aftermath of Jesus' death and their response. His disciples still didn't grasp it, did they? In Luke 24, the risen Lord on the road to Emmaus, he had to explain once again to the disciples. But Mary... She knew, she absorbed, she grasped, she had clear eyes to see. She didn't get to walk with Jesus every day, as the disciples did, but she was a worshiper. She was an extravagant worshiper. She had abandoned her life to Christ. She loved the master. When Martha would busy herself running around, Mary chose the better thing. Sit at Jesus' feet. 
when you sit at his feet, when you learn from him, when you prioritize him, you're going to see what others won't. You're going to see where others won't. That's what's happening in this house right now as that scent fills the air. Mary knew. To say she has done what she could not only means that she held nothing back, that she kept nothing in reserve, that her life was poured out for the master. It also means that she knows that she cannot stop what is about to happen. I know this must happen. I know that I cannot do anything to stop it. But what can I do? I will do all I can. I will do something beautiful. I will prepare my Lord for his burial. And in that confessing that I believe what you have said will happen, will happen. Beloved, the extravagant Christian believes the words of Christ. Imagine that. And yes, there's probably some sorrow that her Lord must go through this and that she can do nothing to stop it. And thus she will do all she can. But the sorrow is only skin deep. It's only skin deep. Beloved, who does Mary live with? Who does Mary wake up and say good morning to every day? Lazarus. Lazarus. Jesus, the master said he would die. And he said he would rise from the dead. I'm inclined to believe him. I watched him raise my brother from the dead before my very eyes. I know what he can do. And I believe what he has said. And I will do all that I can. Sometimes, saints, all you can do is worship. Worship is the right response to whatever the question is you have right now. Worship is the right response to whatever the problem or challenge is. It's all I can do. And consider what must be true. Consider what must be true in the heart of Mary to do what she did. Jesus is who he said he is. He will do what he said he will do. Yes, I believe. And it's worth it all. Break the jar. Pour it out. If he is who he says he is, then nothing else matters. If the words of Jesus are true, every other lofty idea that's raised against him are false. If the gospel he declares is true, then he's worthy of it all. But understand and be encouraged. If you are a weary saint of God this morning, even the beauty of what Mary did, the great expense and the cost that was lavished and poured out in worship to consecrate and prepare Jesus' body for burial, even in something so beautiful as this, The offering was not worthy of the body which received it. Saints, even our best poured out isn't worthy of Jesus' beauty. It will never be perfect. But do all you can do. Do all you can do. Remember, it was not the cost. 
It was not the perfection of the oil and the beauty and pureness of the oil that gave it true value. It was the one upon whom it was poured that gave it the true worth. Jesus is of unsurpassing value. Nothing we could ever give us is worthy of him. Nothing we could ever give. But oh, how he loves us. How he loves us so. And in that beauty, the beauty of a heart that's poured out upon his head, his beard, his clothes, his feet, Jesus erects a monument for all time. Final verse, verse, seven, verse 9, verse 9. And truly I say to you, wherever the gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what this woman did will also be spoken of in memory of her. How would it be to be a living testament, a live action shot of the truth of Scripture here and now? And so we are. We are here this morning, 2,000 years later, talking about this woman. Consider how the Gospel of John ends. What does it tell us? The very last verse. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Talk about a high bar to make the cut. And what that statement by John does is it causes us to behold the radiance of what is included in Scripture. Knowing that there were 10,000 events and people and miracles that were there only for them to experience. They're lost to the ages. Now we look at this word. And this is the cream. This is what the Holy Spirit, in his divine determination, said will be preserved forever. His word endures forever. And amidst all that beauty, the elite position of making it into the Gospels by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it would be like a, a country having a massive military, a million soldiers. So many soldiers, the world could not hardly contain them. But then it parades out ten men. And it said, these are the most treasured, most prized of them all. We would look at all of them with awe, wouldn't we? And wonder, would we not? Who are these men? Out of all of them, it is these that are the best. And now out of these ten that have been hand-selected out of the one million, we want to recognize one out of those ten. Please step forward. Whenever anyone thinks about this mighty military for all eternity, I want them to think about this soldier right here. How would you gaze upon that soldier? How much would you want to know everything about that person? What qualities drove that person? I want to be them. I want to know the heart. I want to know the dedication. Like the centurion of great faith who caused Jesus to stop in his tracks. Never have I seen such a faith. In all of Israel. What was it about Mary? And truly I say to you. Wherever the gospel. Is proclaimed in the whole world. What this woman did. Will also be spoken of. In memory of her. 
of such an incredible legacy. An incredible legacy. Blackaby, he writes this quote, We do not know all that God finds most pleasing, nor do we know what acts of our love he may choose to honor through our children and future generations. Abraham could not have known that the day he demonstrated his willingness to sacrifice his only son would be memorialized and would bless many generations who heard of his obedience. David could not have known that his walk with God would please him so much that David's example would bless generations who followed him. God can take your faithfulness and begin a spiritual legacy, making it a blessing to others for generations to come. You will never know until eternity all who received a blessing because of your righteous life, close quote. But beloved, the question must be asked, how long does a legacy, how long does the legacy of an extravagant Christian life linger? I'll tell you, it lingers like pure spikenard. Only a drop, when only a drop will do, one and a half cups poured out. Do you realize that this scent of spikenard, which had flowed down over Jesus' head, soaking his hair, down into his beard, into the very fabric of his inner and outer clothes, do you realize that this scent was with Jesus through every painful step toward Calvary. You couldn't wash that much off if you tried. And I'm sure that Jesus didn't. Pontius Pilate, he smelled spikenard when he stood across from Jesus. The soldiers who removed Jesus' outer garment to whip, to whip him, the waft of pure nard would have filled their senses. The soldiers who twisted a crown of thorns and came close enough to push it down on his head, we know what they smelled. And he walked with his head hung down, laboring as he carried the top of his cross, and his hair would have come across his face, bringing with it the scent of worship. And the soldiers, they removed Jesus' remaining clothes to gamble for them beneath the cross. You smell that? What's on this? Joseph of Arimathea, taking down the body of Jesus, holding close his body as he laid him down, wondering who had already prepared his body. The scent of spikenard already there. May it be said, mom and dad were extravagant lovers of God. Grandma and grandpa, they were extravagant worshipers of God. In them, I saw a life poured out. That's a legacy I want to tell you about. Come gather around so I can tell you. That's the heart of Mary. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Great and precious are your words to us this morning. We stand in fulfillment of this prophecy as we talk of Mary and we remember her. And Lord, we desire 
to have her heart. Lord, for any of us that have allowed our worship to grow stale or to grow cold, Lord, we ask that you would fill it anew, that you would rejuvenate it, refresh it, cause that sponge to be soft again. Heavenly Father, as we take this message of the extravagant life home with us, I ask that we may never forget it. Lord, that we may know what is the height and length and depth and width of the love of Christ, that we may pour it out extravagantly in Jesus' mighty name.